Hey folks, thanks for joining me on Ultra Habits. I'm your host, RJ Singh. My show is dedicated to all things executive. Here, we understand the unique challenges of executive life and the things that will no doubt come up in your business and personal life that have the potential to impact you negatively. On this show, we interview the world's top minds from the fields of business, medical, military, sports, the sciences, academia, and much, much more. Our goal is to leave you after every episode with more knowledge, wisdom, and awareness that ultimately help you improve your habits and move you and keep you at peak performance. Enjoy. And again, folks, thanks for joining me. Are you trapped in an endless cycle of unhealthy habits? Do you want to eat better, be more active, and sleep soundly, but struggle to make lasting changes? Well, you're not alone. We all have unique psychological and situational barriers that sabotage our health goals. In The Health Habit, psychologist Dr. Amantha Einberg steps away from the ineffective one-size-fits-all approach and equips you with a personalized plan to shatter your barriers and transform your well-being for good. That's the topic of the show today, The Health Habit. Amantha Imber's recent book, and we dive into much, much more. So Amantha Imber is an organizational psychologist and founder of Behavior Change Consultancy Inventium. Amantha is also the co-creator of the Australian Financial Review's Most Innovative Companies list and the AFR Boss Best Places to Work list and has worked with companies such as Google, Apple, Disney, Lego, and Atlassian, and the list really goes on. If you're in the mode of habit change, as many people are with the new year, and you're looking to sustain that habit change, this is a conversation you're going to want to tune into. I really hope you enjoy it, and I really hope you take some things away from it. Amantha, welcome to Ultra Habits. How are you going? Good to be here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely stoked to get you on the show. I was actually on the plane yesterday listening to one of your interviews, and the girl two seats next to me had your book. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, it was It was really like I wanted to tell her, oh, look, I'm about to talk about it. Oh, it felt like that might be a bit too intense. She was uh, she was reading one of your other books, though, time-wise. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really, really cool. Oh, that's fun. I I must say, I do still get like a bit of a thrill hearing about, you know, sightings in the wild is how I think about it. Like I'll often at the moment, because the health habit has just launched, I'm getting quite a few people sending me photos of, you know, seeing it in the airport or bookshops Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I, and I find that, um, quite, quite thrilling. (laughs) Yeah. I actually saw your, uh, your book in the bookshop too. Then I was in Brisbane and it was kind of on that table, you know, like bestsellers. And I was like, Amanda, I, sh- I wanted to take a picture and send it to you because I know you would still dig it, right? Like, totally. Ri- yeah, you wrote, you know, no matter how many books you write, I would imagine still be super, super cool. But for look, for our audience that don't know your work, you're the, the founder of Inventium. What is it that you guys do? We're a behavior change consultancy. So ultimately what we do is we exist to help people feel better, think better and and do better work. Um, so, so my background is organizational psychology. So I think about how can we help people feel better and perform better when they're doing the thing that occupies about, you know, a third of our adult lives. So that's, that's what we get obsessed over. Yeah. I love your mission to kill bad work practices. How cool is that? Right. <laughs> 
how, how did you get passionate about this work, Amanda? Like, what was your journey to, to, to go there? So I grew up thinking, certainly in my teenage years, that I would become a clinical psychologist. So my mum's a clinical psych. And for those that are not quite sure what that means, it's a psychologist that works with people that are generally having some kind of a mental health um, challenge or diagnosis. And they're, they're looking to work through that in, in like a kind of, I guess, a counseling therapeutic kind of a way. And that's what my mum has done for gosh, like 50 years now. She's still practicing. Um, and I, I loved it. She described it as being a detective of the mind. And I thought, Oh, that sounds so cool. And I was always drawn to work that I could do that would help people in a meaningful way. And the one question I had though about clinical psychology is I didn't understand how my mom could detach herself at night. Like she'd hear, you know, essentially like the, the most painful stories from people all day. And yes, she was there to help, but I don't know. I, I find, um, I'm very good at catching people's emotions and then internalizing them. And I thought, how, how on earth, like what I work as a clinical psych. And then in second year psychology, I remember being taught about the different types of psychology because I just thought, oh, this clinical psychology and that's it. But I discovered that there was this thing called organizational psychology. It was a whole field. It was a lot less well-known then than it is now. I feel like now it's a little bit more mainstream thanks to people like Adam Grant. But essentially it's thinking about how can we get the best out of people at work? And that really appealed to me because it was about helping people in a meaningful way, but it was also in a way that I thought, okay, I'm not going to come home and, and just feel like I'm, you know, holding the world on my shoulders in terms of the, the things that I would be hearing about and helping people with during the day. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, I think it takes a, a really kind of special kind of person to be able to hold that space for people to really be empathetic, but ultimately not own it. I, I think that would be a really difficult balance, right? I I think it is. And I, I like, I have had discussions with my mom about how she does it, but I, I still don't fully understand. Mm. So when you were getting into organizational behavior, you know, like, was it cutting edge? Were there there a lot of theories out there or were you kind of at the, I guess, the the beginning of that whole movement? Look, I mean, there was so much research, so many theories out there. I was definitely not at the cutting edge. Uh, I think that organizational psychology has been popularized, but certainly there was still, you know, there were were tons of um, journals out there that are dedicated to um, org psych and org behavior research. Uh, but I, I think, you know, look, I still feel this is a thing, but I mean, like a pet peeve of mine that I've spent my career trying to like solve for, I guess, is that there's so much knowledge that just sits undiscovered and unknown in academic papers because they're like for the average person, they're quite hard to read. It's like they're written in a different language, even though it is still, um, you know, mostly written in English. But they're just really hard to understand. They're full of jargon, particularly the results section of an academic paper in psychology. Like you need training in statistics in order to understand what are they actually saying. And 
I see a really important part of my role in my career and certainly what we do as a company at Inventium to look at what is being, um, you know, discovered in these scientific papers and make that really simple and practical for people to benefit from and apply in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think you strike me as someone that's very relatable and down to earth and a good conduit for the world of academia to kind of distill that into the world of corporate. Because for someone like me that's running an organization, you know, if I have a bunch of kind of scientists rock up with this kind of jargon, like I need applicable information and someone that could actually help me drive change and understand business challenges. So from what I understand, you kind of then really moved into productivity. Is that right? Well, what my journey was after doing my doctorate in organizational psychology is I actually worked in advertising as a consumer psychologist for about five years. And this was completely random. I was, I was working in, I was like the HR manager of a security firm when I was finishing off um, my doctorate. And it was horrible. It was such a horrible workplace. Um, you know, yeah, encountered all sorts of very problematic things there. And, uh, and, and then I just randomly, I was looking on Seek um, or Monster or whatever the job, the main job board was. Like, I mean, this is going back, oh, I don't know, 20 years or something. And I remember I saw this job ad for, I think that like it was called a consumer reporter or some random, you know, advertising-esque title. And it was all about understanding consumer behavior. And when I was studying at university, I was always really intrigued by the consumer psychology journals and understanding, you know, why do people buy what they buy? Like what is behind those decisions? I was just naturally curious. And I thought, oh my gosh, like a job exists where I can get paid to read this research and apply it. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Uh, I had no experience in advertising. I probably didn't even know what, a, like, what, what it meant to create a brand or anything. And I applied and I think it like, I think it was quite a competitive position and somehow I ended up getting it, which was crazy to me. And so that then led to me working in advertising for about five years and just immersing myself in how do these companies try to change and manipulate people's behavior to get them to do more of the thing that they're trying to do to, you know, essentially make the clients more money. And while intellectually, that was very, very interesting work. And I, and I feel like gave me really good skills for starting a business, which was not on the life plan. I'm, I'm not someone that, you know, was like had a lemonade stand when I was eight years old on the street, as I feel like every entrepreneur has got that story. I do not. And um, so I learned some interesting things. But then I just, I felt like after five years, I'd reached my use by date on the industry and I needed to get back to really what, what mattered to me personally in terms of doing work that was making a positive difference to people's lives and getting back to my org psych roots. And that's what led me to start Inventium. And so in answer to your question around productivity, Inventium actually started out as an innovation consultancy. So we um, have spent a lot of our time and we still do helping organizations and the people within them become more innovative, like get better at identifying where are some big opportunities to solve? How can you think more creatively and so on? And then probably about uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, I began being really obsessed with personal productivity. Um, I'd read 
deep work by Cal Newport at the time. And, and, you know, you know, when you read those books and I think deep work is that book for many people that just switches something in your brain and then you can't unsee the way that you've been behaving. And it just feels so insane um, that I was letting my day being run by all the the shallow, um, you know, non-cognitively demanding work. Yet here I was like trying to be, you know, thought leader in inverted commas and certainly a classic knowledge worker where the benefit of what I bring to the world is in the quality of my thinking and how I can, you know, unpack and dissect and communicate that thinking to, to the masses. Yet I was barely doing any deep work and that switched something in me and, and led me to broaden out what Inventium does and what I do personally um and and that sort of how productivity came about yeah for me um I had that moment when I read essentialism oh yeah I mean that book just right like so and, and it was done it was so concise right in the spirit of the book and it just blew my mind how much redundant shit I can do like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like dur during the day or like how I'm just not prioritizing. And for, for me, like I have this kind of psycholo psychological process where I will attribute importance, the same degree of importance to everything on my task list. And it has to be done that day. And so I, it, it will then drive me. And and then I kind of stepped back after reading that book and I was like, wow, this is like on my list, my laundry is important as is important as closing that deal. And I'm as focused on both of them, you know, like I'm like, this is this is crazy. So so that's a wild that's a wild journey in, in terms of your journey in in advertising. Like that's always kind of been an industry that's wigged me out, like how when you really think about it, you really understand how humans are not really rational, right? Like how we respond to advertising, like this fantasy world. It's just like this storytelling piece. Like, was there some real learnings for you that kind of blew your mind during that process? I think, I mean, like there, there definitely was. And for a lot of my time in advertising, I used to write a column for B&T Weekly, which is like one of the main trade mags. It still is one of the main trade mags. Uh, and I pitched this column idea to them really early on in my career because I thought, you know, I need to make a name for myself in this industry because I'm brand new to it. And I was really naive. And I, I and there are basically two trade magazines in advertising at the time. There aren't too many more now. And I pitched this idea to both editors that I would write this column called Did You Know? And I would basically every, every week would have a theme. Like, you know, one week might be, um, you know, food and drink. Another week might be... Uh, um, like, uh, you know, I don't know, advertising to children, um, yeah. it, which was something that I had very strong views about, um, but different themes. And I would reveal five counterintuitive research findings, uh, every week. And, um, and, and I mean, amazingly the editor at B&T at the time, um, said, I love this and gave me a back page column, which I wrote for, I don't know, like five or six years or something like that, uh, which, you know. Which was which was definitely, um, you know, something that was really helpful for for my career. But yeah, I think like when I think about you know just practically, like there's lots of different research findings that I found really interesting. But I think practically speaking, and and from a business owner point of view, it gave me a really strong appreciation for how important building a brand is. And 
I think that this is something that typically business owners, they, they become a business owner because they're really skilled in the thing that they've become a business in, you know, more so for services businesses, but, you know, sometimes it's the case for product businesses as well. And they, and, and, and most business owners have never worked in advertising or marketing, but in advertising, like the importance of brand and what you just unconsciously stand for in people's minds is super important. And also the importance of bringing something unique into the world. And so with Inventium, I was really clear that like what, how we were going to be different and how we were going to be different at the time when we were, um, you know, primarily an innovation uh, consultancy is that we, like everything we did was underpinned by science. And at the time, innovation consultancies, there weren't many, but where they were, like, you know, it was some like ex-creative director that had, you know, done a few great campaigns and was trading off that history to help people think more creatively. And there was no science behind it um, and really no evidence that their approach was going to, you know, be able to work for the masses. And so Inventium's position was science-based innovation. Um, and, and that's still um, like the science-based idea um, is still very true to where we are now, like I think about 17 years on from there. And I, I think with Inventium, and certainly the feedback that I get from the market is that people are always surprised at our size. Like we're, we're typically about a 10-person business, um, you know, give or take one or two people, depending on sort of what's happening and, and what our, our needs, our resourcing needs are. But I think we bat above our weight in terms of the brand presence that we have, that we've been able to do through certain initiatives and strategies that we've had. And I think that's the power of brand and what I learned in those five years working as a consumer side. No, that's excellent. So, you know, we're talking about productivity now, and it, it really seems that you became interested in pro productivity for yourself. And then you probably saw the opportunity to take it into to firms. Like, Working with firms in terms of productivity, like what are the biggest things that you see that generally impact these firms negatively in terms of productivity? I think the biggest thing is that, you know, people think so much about money and budget and how is money allocated and they think so little about time and how are we as individuals that make up an entire organization, how are we using our time? And like, you know, to, to give you an example, um, let's just take uh, your, like your average executive assistant that is told to organize a meeting um, and, you know, and, and they're probably, um, you know, they're probably in a big corporate in a big risk averse kind of situation and so they want to cover their ass and so they're going to invite more people rather than less people to a meeting and they're probably going to just do like you know work to the default in the calendar setting so it's going to be 30 or 60 minutes um, as opposed to how much time that meeting actually deserves and you know let's just say like you know the average hourly rate of one of the executives that is part of that meeting is let's just say it's $500 an hour for argument's sake is probably a lot more in many organizations though, and let's just say it's a 10 person meeting, which is not unusual. So that's essentially $5,000 that this executive assistant has spent. Yet if you look at what they are, um, what they have permission to decide on in terms of purchasing decisions, maybe that limit is a few hundred dollars, if anything. Um, and like that is mental. Like we do not value our time anywhere near as much as we should. 
and we do not obsess over how we're using our time. Like many people just squander time by, you know, doing just checks of social media or the news or whatever your, you know, procrastination method, method of choice is. And I think um, that that's why, like for, for companies like Inventium, I think we were the first in Australia to implement the four-day week. Like that's why it actually can be successful and increase productivity despite the fact that people are working in inverted commas um, for less time. So when you're trying to get an organization, you know, to start to value their time, that then, I suppose that kind of culture needs to be communicated top down. Like how do you actually implement that? I mean, you, without having to go too much into the weeds, because I know it's probably a massive process, but like how would you conceptually take um, a concept like better time management and then apply that? or help a company apply that? Mm. It's a great question. Like broadly speaking, we build capability. Like in terms of how we work and how we use our time, it's not something that we're actually trained in. It's just something that, you know, people expect other people to know how to do, but it's not. Like it's often doing things that feel counterintuitive or unnatural. Like it feels really natural to multitask or context switch your day, like your way through a day. Like, let's just say you've got a, you know, a, a report to write. Um, and, and typically your average report is hard to write. So you're probably going to be feeling negative emotions as you sit there on your computer, typing and thinking away. And, and then you're like feeling this unpleasant feeling and you're feeling kind of stuck. And then your brain goes, oh, I need to relieve that feeling of stuckness. So I'm just going to pop into my inbox because maybe there's a good news email, or maybe I can just like respond to a few emails and get that false sense of progress that that you get it's like kind of meaningless progress in many ways but it feels good to like archive emails delete things shoot off some quick replies um and then you suddenly remember like 10 20 minutes later hang on I'm actually meant to be doing this report and that's the meaningful thing that matters as opposed to getting into my inbox and so we've kind of we've got these ways of working that feel natural and you know the technology has been designed in many ways to reduce our productivity, um, particularly technology and like software that is quite addictive by, by design. Um, and we actually need to train people in how to use their time better. And, and we get amazing results doing that. Um, but I think, you know, a question that I get asked by uh, a, a lot of execs that I work with at Inventium is, how do you actually measure productivity? And interestingly, I mean, yes, like we can measure the output of a firm and you know, we can measure how many widgets are being produced per hour or, or whatever. Um, but it's actually very hard to measure the, or, or certainly like there's no common way of measuring like knowledge worker productivity, which I'm very interested in. And I'm, I'm currently um, in the process of piloting a tool to do that um, because I think that is a massive hole in the market. Like if we don't know that we're struggling with productivity, like what like what's going to prompt us to actually go we need to do something here we need an intervention yeah you're you're totally on point there like i mean it's easy to you know you've got lean experts in the manufacturing environment you can even manage uh customer service productivity but like how do you manage or report on productivity for roles that are really outcome focused just just uh with the context switching and i i have a question about like working from home and obviously COVID kind of drove this. Like I find when I work from home, I context switch more because I start to sweep 
or like I like to be honest with like I'll start to do a lot of different things that are unrelated like do you feel that they're like people are more productive working from home or in the office or a combination of both like what's been your view on that I think it's about being mindful around what do you do best in which environment I think that working from home it can be quite polarizing and it also depends on whether you've got young children in the home um, or noisy flatmates or maybe you're caring for someone so I think it does depend on what your individual situation is at home um, like for me my my home environment is is brilliant that is where I get my best deep work done but then you know, Inventium is remote first, which means we have no um, physical office presence. We we gave up our leases um, in, in the middle of COVID, like in 2020. And that's a decision that served us really well. But um, I think for, for most companies and, and certainly most, um, most kind of desk-based workers are working in a hybrid fashion these days. And I think that people need to give more deliberate thought as to what do they do best in the office, which might be collaboration it might be just like human connection and socialization with their team it may well be deep work but it may well not be deep work and if it's not deep work it's really easy to go back into the office and to get to the end of the day because your day's been filled with meetings and chit chat and go today's been really unproductive what did I even get done but if you were intentional and said well my day's in the office to collaborate and communicate and you know, make important decisions that need to be make, made as a group and ideally face to face, then it actually was a productive day. So I think it's kind of reframing what a day at home versus what a day in the office means for you in terms of outcomes and, and you know, productivity. I, I think the key point you made there is about being aware and kind of auditing your reality, right? Like everyone's reality is different. Like for me, I love being in the office when no one's there, like really early. I've got little kids at home and I'm easily pulled into their context. I'm easily distracted. And for me, I like going in the office, you know, 6, 30, 7 a.m. and just banging out a few hours because I think just being in the office creates a certain vibe and mindset for me. But I think to your point, I think it's like kind of horses for courses, right? Or courses for horses, whichever way you say <laughs> that. But um, how, you know, as we move to, to, to habits, like is there a relationship between productivity and habits yeah I mean I think you know anything that you want to become uh like habitual or ritualized as a behavior and certainly I can think of many productivity habits that I've I, that I've tried to you know ritualize or habitualize um I think habits play a really big part in that ideally you want behavior that is productive to feel natural and be automatic which is largely what habits are as opposed to them feeling like you'd need to think about that and deliberately do that thing. Um, you know, like a, a really basic example is I find a lot of people that consume a lot of productivity um, content will uh, will want to adopt a habit or maybe they have adopted a habit to not check email first thing in the morning because it sets your day up to be reactive. And so if you can make that a habit, something that just comes naturally to you, that's going to be... Um, a lot better in terms of just saving brain power and, you know, saving, uh, you know, willpower resources um, compared to like sitting at your computer and going, oh, I really want to check my email. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm going to do it. Or maybe I'm just going to 
resist it for the next hour and, you know, bargaining with yourself. Like it's so much easier if it's just a habit and it comes naturally. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine when you're trying to impact the business in terms of productivity, like your success to a large degree is attributed to the individual's ability to habituate what you're trying to implement, right? Like, and if they can't, well, how will they improve, I suppose? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's like, there's so many change programs that go on at organizations. And I feel like I really never hear change managers talk about habit change when really I think they'd be well-versed to, to think about what are the habits that we want to change as opposed to what change do we want to do at a really macro level? And it's, you know, and change programs generally fail. That's my issue with those kind of ad hoc, random rah-rah seminars, right? Like you got people coming in there, you know, for a day doing some work and they're still leaving with the same bad habits and processes that they showed up with. But, you know, obviously it fulfills the budget and someone can tick the box and say that they did a, a an event and there's no long-term sustainable change. Like your work in, in your kind of segue into habits, was that also out of personal interest or was that something that you saw that kind of you needed to do to reinforce the productivity piece in, in your work or both? So I've been, like, I mean, I've been thinking about behavior change forever and a large part of behavior change is thinking about how can we change habits? So I've, you know, I've, I've long, you know, been interested and in, in read and, you know, ed educated clients around behavior change and, and with that, you know, falls habit change. But in terms of why um, I decided with the the current book, The Health Habit, to delve into, well, I guess write about the, the psychology of habits is because I felt it was the piece that was missing from essentially the genre of health and fitness type books. And, and happy to go deeper there, but that's that was what drove me. It just felt like a missing piece in that area. Let's go deeper. Okay. So, so how, um, so how, I guess the, the, the idea for the health habit emerged. Um, cause I, I know for me, I'm always interested in why, why did that author pick that topic to essentially dedicate their, their life to for, for a good couple of years is essentially what you're talking about with the book in terms of all the research and, and writing and editing and then, you know, PR and marketing and so forth that, that comes with deciding on what your next book topic is. And for me, I, you know, it, it like, yeah, I was, I was thinking, I was thinking about health because I'm someone that like health has been my number one value for as long as I can remember. And, and that was largely shaped by both my parents having had some major health issues and, and really both of them, statistically speaking, being very lucky to still be alive. And it made me really think differently about health. It made me think differently about my own health. And that like without my health, I am just not useful in any of the roles that I play in life. Like I, you know, I'd be a terrible parent, a terrible partner, a terrible leader um, if I don't have my health um, and, you know, terrible in all the other roles I haven't mentioned. Um, and I read a lot about health. I, you know, read a lot of research about health. I'm constantly running experiments on on myself and roping my partner in to improve our health. And I I was thinking about health books, like because I've bought a lot of health books over the years. And like if you go into a bookshop, 
and you visit the bookshop monthly, there's always like new bestsellers around health. And it occurred to me one day, it's like, why, like, why are there new books on health? Because like, presumably if any one of those books, like those fad diet books or fitness books or sleep books or whatever, if any of them had actually changed people's behavior, like there'd, there'd be no market for health books. But what typically happens is that you buy the latest health fad book and you read it and you go, that was great. I'm going to change. And you get really excited and then nothing changes. And what we know from psychology is that information or knowledge alone is not enough to change behavior. And I think the health category of books um, is living proof of that. And then in the meantime, if you go to the bookstore, there's a, there's a whole other section of books around habit change, like Atomic Habits, um, you know, has, has been like a perennial bestseller, but there's lots of other great books around behavior change and habit change. And they're books that I've, you know, I've, I've read all of them. I have views on all of them. You know, I, I think it's, you know, such an interesting body of knowledge. And I was thinking one day, like, why have those books never met? Like, why have those two genres never like combined to give birth to a book baby? That would be really useful. Like if we could know what are the most impactful things that we can do to improve our health and then diagnose what is the psychological barrier standing in the way for me personally, and then what are some behavior change strategies to actually make a permanent change? And that's what my idea was for the health habit. That's brilliant. And I think you touched and unpack so much there. I mean, I think with your background in advertising, like you'd understand as to why there was so much material kind of repackaged at the consumer. And I think the consumer feels good when they pick up and buy that book on that airplane, you know, that one hour flight. And then they put that book down, you know, with their, their bookmark and never pick up or implement anything in that. And I think you also said something which we talk a lot about in the recovery community because I've been in recovery for a long time that, you know, self-knowledge doesn't get you anywhere, right? It's, it's the application. And I think to your point, like we're living in an era where we're just like overcooked with information. And I mean, it's pretty basic, right? Move your body, eat right, sleep. Like, I mean, it, it's not rocket science. And I think to your point, again, I think what's been lacking is like, well, how do we move from what is initially inertia or self-will to habituation? Because obviously we know self-will and willpower is not efficient and we want consistency versus motivation, right? It just a, a, a side question, like, do you feel that organizations have habits? Uh, yes, like massively they've got habits and often those habits I mean I kind of I, I guess like there there are norms which is typically what the culture like what creates a culture mm -hmm. like what are the behavioral norms and 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 arguably some of those behavioral norms are habitual they're kind of automatic you know like I think about something I think if I define this as a habit but it's certainly a norm in a lot of organizations that your average meeting will start probably about four or five minutes late like that is a cultural norm in many organizations. And that to me is quite shocking. Like if you take an average 60 minute meeting, and if most of those 60 minute meetings are starting five minutes late, that is 8% wastage that is happening every day, multiple times a day across an organization. That is hugely costly, but no one seems to care. That blows my mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're definitely on 
to something there because I mean, you know, back to that point around like seminars and the rah-rah and, you know, the Mentos and everyone's feeling good and high-fiving for the day. What people really need is skills and they need more uh, wisdom and insight as to how to cope better with their job and their role in their environment. And I think that's where habits have weight and there's depth there and there's something to anchor yourself to versus kind of, you know, something that's a bit more fluffy and conceptual in, in some of these seminars that we're talking about. So you're you're now kind of on the, on the habits path. Um, you're obviously into habits and good habits for yourself. So where does the research take you? Like, where do you go once you decide to write the book, The Health Habits? Well, it took me in two places because the book is divided into two, two parts. So the first part is all around physical health. So I, I made the decision to just focus on physical health in terms of sleep, nutrition, and movement, um, and not focus on mental health, despite the fact that I am a psychologist, because I just thought mental health, I, I can't do it justice as just the fourth part or the fourth pillar, if you like, of health. Um, it's the next book. It's the next book. It's potentially the next book. I mean, like, it's an easy idea for a next book. I'm not sure if it will be the next book, though. Um, but anyway, but yeah, like, you know, at the, at the moment, I'm basically, I'm saying no to new opportunities at the moment because of um, various factors in terms of how my roles changed at Inventium. But it's, it's you know, it's in the back of my mind. Um, and uh, and so, the, the like, I, I knew a lot about all those areas and also just through personal health challenges I've had of, you know, suffering from um, chronic insomnia for many, many years and being a complete sugar addict. Um, sorry, I'd, like I've done a lot of learning, but I, I wanted to speak to the best of the best. So I, I researched who are the top professors in certain fields that I wanted to delve into in the book, um, interviewed a whole bunch of them from all around the world at, at, at top universities um, and also other health experts outside of academia to understand what are the most impactful things that we can be doing to improve our sleep, nutrition, and movement that are currently underutilized. Because I didn't want it to be a book just stating the obvious. I didn't want it to be a book that was like, eat more vegetables or, you know, like, like move more or, you know, just like rubbish like that, that we're fed. And it's like, yeah, I knew that. Um, so I wanted it to be stuff that was new news for people, even people like me that are really into health. And then the second part of the book, was easier to research, I must say, because that was just going into my heartland, psychology and behavior change and looking at and, and rereading many studies that I'd read around how how can we change behavior um, to make that behavior change stick. Uh, and so the second part of the book is is broken up into four sections, which identifies the four biggest barriers that are standing in the way to making change permanent and then has habit change strategies um, around those areas. On the physical side, um, you know, with sleep and, you know, diet and movement, there were some pretty cool things that I I, uh, I heard when I listened to one of your interviews. But I, I'd like you to share, like, what, what were some of the headline things that kind of were like, wow, you know, that really you didn't you didn't think were the case necessarily? Well, let's start with sleep. So... This is this is one of the things that I did know before writing the book, and I'm still surprised how um, how little known this strategy is. And I learned this back in my in my mid twenties, where I um, 
I had uh, very bad insomnia, um, had a lot of anxiety with um, the idea of going to bed because I associated bed with a place where I would just be up all night with my thoughts and not sleeping and just not having a good time of it. And I remember one morning I was was driving to work. I was living in Sydney at the time and it was 8am and I was stuck in peak hour traffic on um, the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, as was my normal morning routine, just stuck in traffic. And I remember like I was just, you know, really tired as I always was in the morning. So I was just tired all day. And I was just like having this random thought to myself, I wonder if there are some people that actually like feel energetic during the day and actually have energy for the whole day. And like, I thought, could you imagine? And then I thought that probably exists. Like there are actually probably people in this world that have energy all day. And then I thought, hmm, maybe I've got a problem. Uh, Maybe I have got a problem. And so I got to work and I Googled, I think I Googled something like Sleep Doctor Sydney and found um, like a really great sleep doctor in, in Sydney who I saw and I went in um, for a, uh, I can never pronounce this right, it's something like polysomnograph, um, which basically means an overnight sleep study. So he had um, a, a kind of particular room set up in his office that like looked like it was, you know, grandma's bedroom from like a 1950s tv show kind of vibe it was weird um and then you like you get into your pajamas at night and they hook you up to a machine that's like you've got about 40 or 50 electrodes just stuck all over your body including like onto your hair and then there's a video camera and someone is literally watching you sleep for the night and I remember getting into bed going like I can't sleep at the best of times. How on earth am I going to sleep with all these things stuck on me? I can't even move without the cords coming off. But anyway, I managed to get apparently about five hours sleep. And what um, what I learned from the results is that, you know, the good news was that physically there was nothing wrong with me. Like I didn't have sleep apnea, which is very common, um, or some kind of, you know, sleep disorder. But then the bad news was it was psychological and... Uh, there was, you know, sadly no magic pill for that. Um, and so what the doctor gave me, like the very first strategy that he said is he asked me to estimate how much time I was spending in bed. Uh, and at the time I estimated, which is going to sound crazy, like it was probably about I don't know, like nine or 10 hours, I, I, you know, would estimate I'd get into bed at about 9 p.m. I'd get out at about 7 a.m., which sounds like a really long period of time, but as an insomniac, the logic that I had applied, and I think this is very common logic, is the longer I'm in bed, the better chance I've got of catching some sleep. So I thought that was actually going to improve my sleep. Then the sleep doctor said, how much time do you estimate that you're actually sleeping in that 10 hour block? And I said, I reckon it's maybe six hours. And he said, okay, we are going to use sleep restriction to improve your sleep. So doctor's orders were um, keeping my wake time the same at 7am. He said, you're only allowed in bed for six hours now because that's apparently how much sleep you're getting. And so I had to stay up until 1am, which to me was crazy. Like that's so late. Um, I'm definitely a morning person. And so, and, and by the time 1am came around, like I was just, I was so exhausted. I'd have to stop myself from falling asleep, you know, like on, on the couch where I think I was like, you know, reading or watching TV to keep myself awake. And what sleep restriction does, and basically when you are at a point, which typically takes a few days, 
of restricting your sleep to say six hours, um, when you're sleeping for that whole six hours, you get to extend it by about half an hour. And so then I could go to bed at 12.30. And then after a few days of successfully sleeping properly for six and a half hours straight, I could then go to bed at midnight. And basically extending it until you feel like your either your sleep quality is being affected um, or you like you feel like, yep, this is how much sleep I need to operate well during the day. And I write about that strategy in the book. It is... Um, I think like if, you know, for people that have seen a sleep doctor and physical um, sleep disorders have been ruled out, it's one of the most common strategies. And for me, it was a game changer. Um, it was it was far and away the most impactful thing that I'd done to improve my sleep. Um, so that was a very long answer, but that was, no, no, no. That was what answer. happened to me personally. And this, how, when you had your daughter, did that, stay or go out of the window like that what happened but i mean i'm asking this question because i've got two young kids and my six-year-old right now he is in my bed he ends up in our bed every night we're in this process of trying to get him out but he's like in this really bad place where his nightmares like he's terrified and so he's in my room right now like four or five times a night and we're trying to work a strategy to like get him comfortable and and that's a whole saga and uh you know I'm losing my temper and it's all bad but uh the challenge for me is I'm a very light sleeper and you know having kids is exacerbated that but like every time he comes into the room and he leaves I'm then kind of thinking about either work or I'm anticipating him coming back and I know, I mean, th- this is kind of for people that are, will become parents. This is kind of becomes the norm. But like back to you, like how did that having your daughter shape or reshape the whole sleep piece? Oh, yeah, it's it's a good question. And I would say there's no one size fits all answer. And also I'm not a child psychologist, but I can share what I did personally and how, how I've navigated that. Um so something, uh, advice that I got before, so I've, I've got, um, the one child and she's nine and the advice that I got before she was born is just book into sleep school and sleep school is a, is a thing that exists. I think in most capital cities, certainly in Australia, there's certainly a few in Melbourne and Sydney, um, where you basically go to learn how to get your child into good sleep habits and typically parents enroll in sleep school. I say enroll, that sounds like it's, it's an actual school, but it's, it's typically, it's typically residential. Like the one that I went to, um, I was there for, for five nights and you, you get help from really experienced, uh, doctors and nurses around how, how do you, how do you help your child sleep better or your, you know, um, newborn, uh, or toddler. And so I, I enrolled, um, myself and my daughter at birth, like, you know, literally, because they're a ridiculously long waiting list. And, and the one that I went to in Melbourne, I think there was a 12 week wait list for. So I'm like, that's fine. Like, you know, the, the first few weeks, I'm like, I'm just going to, you know, be, be led by what Frankie needs and, you know, and just threw all the rule books out the window. Um, cause I, I just sort of felt that that was the best approach for me, um, and my family for the first few weeks. And then when Frankie was three months old, you know, we'd, we'd got past the 12, 12 week waiting list and in we went to sleep school. And I, 
learned some um, brilliant things. So it was um, Masada Sleep School. I think it still exists in Melbourne. And just immersed myself in, okay, what, what do I need to do? How do I, how do I calm Frankie um, if she's woken up and she's crying or um, she just like can't relax herself and, and learned some strategies there, um, sort of like around like patting techniques for the baby. And, and that worked really well. Um, I think that most people that I kept in touch with that were, were also at Masada with me, this, the baby's sleep or the child's sleep definitely improved. But it, but it didn't improve for everyone. So I don't think that's this blanket solution that is like this magic bullet. Um, and then like in terms of what, what you're experiencing now with a child coming into the bedroom, which can be really hard. I um, I experienced that uh, when, when Frankie was about five years old and um, I separated from uh, her father and like for there was like a, a I don't know maybe a couple of month period where Frankie would just come into my room every night and then I sort of got to a point where I'm like oh, I think I think I need to nip this behavior in the bud and the the advice that I got is to well, like which is a pain in the ass when you're implementing it but basically when she comes in the sky okay Frankie let's go back to your room and then you settle them back in their bedroom sometimes I just sit with them until they've fallen asleep and I'll still use the the kind of the patting technique I learned at Masada on Frankie and just kind of just calmly ushering them back to their room which is the last thing that you want to be doing because you're so sleepy and the easy thing to do is just go okay just come into bed so I can get back to sleep so I did that for a few nights and um fairly quickly um that that behavior changed and uh it hasn't been an issue since but as I say you know, sample of one. That's been my experience. Yeah. We, what we did was we put him in the same room as his little sister, who's like two and a half, but she's like the boss. <laughs> and he, he was good. And then we went to the US and I kind of let him play video games and stuff. And I think he just kind of was sleeping with me in the US for about three to four weeks and came home. And, and now he'll try to climb into her bed and she, I could hear her yelling at him. She's like, no, get out. Like she's such a, you know, anyway, so, I mean, but I think that the overarching message there is for people that are parents or to become parents, like you, you still have to find a way to protect that sleep, particularly like if you are doing important work or work in, in the day and, and having a strategy and a plan is, is really, really important. Um, and so the other thing that was really a, a call out for me, I'm a person that does a lot of exercise. I do a lot of calisthenics and was the piece around that, what was it, like 20 seconds on? Yes, a rehear yeah. workout. Yes, yes. And again, like this research has been around for probably about a decade, I think, but it's not mainstream. So everyone knows about HIIT training, high-intensity interval training where you go hard and then you have a bit of a break and then you go hard and then you know, repeat that multiple times over, say, a 30-minute period. And that's pretty common and most fitness apps will have, you know, their version of HIIT workout. But rehit workout stands for reduced exertion, high intensity interval training. And this is what I think is really interesting because I think a really common barrier to people trying to get fit or at least adopt some kind of a fitness routine or habit is that they have this misconception that it's going to take a lot of time. It's like, well, I need an hour for that because I need to get changed and drive to a gym and then I do my work and then I drive home and get changed and then I have to shower and so I can't do it in the middle of the workday because it's too time consuming and, and so on and so forth. There's so many mental barriers in the way. And so 
Um, what rehit training is is it's um, kind of like hit, but it's a lot shorter, and it gets you very good results when we're talking about cardiovascular fitness, which um, is a really important type of fitness because it um, is associated with uh, lower mortality rates in terms of like, you know, we live longer. Um, so it's super important. And so what the, literally the most time effective rehit protocol, if you like, that has been researched, and this come, comes from um, the University of Bath, is that they had um, a group of participants come into the lab three times a week for six weeks. And the workout that they were asked to do is to do uh, like a short warm up, two or three minute warm up on an exercise bike, then do an all out 20 second sprint, like as hard as you can go, like it burns. Like I, I do rehit workouts um, uh, at least once a week and it is, it's hard. So it's intense, 20 seconds of pain. Then you are like recovering for about two or three minutes until your heart rate is um, back down to normal. And then you're repeating that 20 second all out sprint. And then you finish with a cool down for a couple of minutes just to get your heart rate back down to um, sort of a, a normal level. And so they had people do that particular rehit protocol in the lab three times a week for six weeks. Their cardiovascular fitness improved by up to 15%. And if you're a runner or a jogger, and like I'm a slow jogger, um, although I've sort of re replaced that habit with other things at the moment, um, like you would have to be going on runs or jogs five times a week, 40 minutes at a time for six weeks to see those kind of gains. So they're really massive gains for a short period of time. Yeah, I think the the major call out there is that most people would benefit to reframe how they look at working out. Like it's not, it need not be an event. You know, like I'm that guy where, when my kids are at the playground, I'm finding leverage to either push or pull on the actual playground gear, right? Because you, yeah, I'm like the kid parents are kind of looking at me like, because you, you can use that 10 or 15 minutes. Like it doesn't have to, you could be wearing jeans. You don't have to be wearing active wear and, you know, Lululemon or Lord and Jane. Like you just, it doesn't have to be a thing. So yeah, I think that's really excellent. Um, I want to move, uh, you know, uh, as we, we start to land the plane to to kind of the, the psychological elements of behavior change. A question that I wanted to ask you is, like, with that, what's the role of, you know, identity and how we see ourselves? And this may be through research or opinion in terms of sustaining behavior change and that psychological piece? Uh, it is super important. There is plenty of research to back this up that in order to really change your habits for good, um, particularly like if there's a cognitive barrier at play, like you're just, you know, like when you're feeling really tired, exhausted, burnt out, it's really hard to make a permanent change. But if you can start to change your self-identity, your behavior will typically follow whether you like it or not. Um, so for me, um, I've done this in a few ways, certainly with regards to exercise, I've definitely made this change. I, I was the kind of person that was, you know, picked last for every school sports team. Um, I, I was like very slow. I, you know, was always the last to finish in any kind of athletics race or swimming race. Um, I was, I was quite uncoordinated. I was just a very unsporty, unfit kid. 
And I took that self-identity through to adulthood, um, as you do, like when that's kind of how you see yourself as a child and, you know, continued with that and like, yeah, I'd kind of like, you know, go in and out of exercise fads, um, you know, with the primary motivation of being, I'm just going to lose that, you know, like five kilos or whatever. So really the, the motivation was around aesthetics as opposed to health, but something switched in me about five years ago when I started, um, like I, I, I wouldn't say I discovered because I'd done weight training before, but I hadn't done it. Um, sort of properly or, or religiously in terms of like sticking to it. Um, and and for the last five years through various means and and people, weight training, resistance training has, has become uh, a, a, like habitual for me. So I do it four times a week without fail. Um, you know, I think the only time I've missed it is like when I had COVID um, you know, a couple of years ago, but, but otherwise I train. And part of my self-identity now and, and I truly believe it is that I am like a fit, strong person. Um, and so not training, like we, you know, as, as, as humans, we don't want to do things that feel like they're contradicting how we see ourselves. We want to act in a way that's consistent. So there's a lot of research around changing your self-identity is really key. If you're going to make, say, you know, dietary changes, like the way that you eat, the way that you move, um, you know, really stick for good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cognitive dissonance piece, right? Like I think, you know, many people unfortunately give up before the miracle. And I think the the more that we change our habits and our behavior, the more that we start to trust the process when we implement a new one that it will ultimately become incorporated in who we are. And I think like, you know, I think the the unknown element is like that period of like, initial inertia and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired or I want to optimize or like this isn't working and and you know there's there's some inertia there and maybe some will that we need to generate but I think if we can trust in the process that if we continue and stay on the track it will become easier and I think a lot of people give up and I think that's why obviously new year's resolutions are are a thing but don't necessarily work as well as people would like them to in terms of your your own, we always ask kind of our, our guests this, like what's a habit that's really important for you? Oh, I've like I've got a lot. Um, but I would say um, like it's really simple, but having a consistent sleep wake time um, is very important for me. I really struggle and I find like that days can get put out if I'm waking at a significantly different time to where I would naturally wake, which is about 6.30. So, you know, if, for example, I've got an early start, like last week I was doing some breakfast TV interviews or the week before for, for the launch of the health habit and I had to get up quite early. And while I can get up early, that's fine. It throws my body clock out for several days and my body clock then is waking at 5 a.m. instead of 6.30. And um, yeah, so I just, I, I, where possible, I religiously stick to it quite a similar bedtime and quite a similar wake time. Yeah, I think that's simple, not necessarily easy, but it is definitely a game changer. And and so our audience, right? They're gonna they're gonna want to learn more. They're gonna read the books, the Time Wise or Health Habits. And I know you've got more books out there. Like, where can they learn more about you, Amantha, and Inventium? Sorry, I 
both are very Googleable. If you put Inventium into a search engine, you'll probably very easily find us. Um, it's Invent with an I-U-M and likewise, Amantha. It's like Samantha without the S. There's not many. You can find me on LinkedIn and Insta and at amantha.com. Um, and uh, yeah, if you search for The Health Habit or TimeWise, they're my most recent books. Um, wherever you get books, again, you will find them. <laughs> And it's on Audible too, yeah? It sure is on Audible, yes, yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, Amantha. Really appreciate you. And and thanks for all the insights and and wisdom distilled today. Really, really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, folks. Thanks for joining me on this episode. With all the options out there, I am super grateful that you spent time with me. I hope that you've received value from this conversation. And if you have... I've achieved my goal. Your support is really appreciated. If you really, really like the show or you want me to know how we can make it better, please do leave a review letting me know and the world know your thoughts, yeah? If you want to know more about Ultra Habits and what we're doing, go to www.ugventures.co. Sign up for the quiz. You'll get some really good insights into the archetype in terms of your habits and how you can improve your habits in your business and in your life. You'll also get a weekly newsletter with some blogs, episode updates. I promise you, we do not spam. I absolutely hate spam, and I think it's super unprofessional. It's all about value. So anyways, folks, until the next episode, have a great week. Take care.